Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. He has his three R's. Instead of reading, writing, and arithmetic, there's ruggedness, resourcefulness, and resilience. So we're watching a life cycle through a tree that is reflected in seasons that is a learning experience for our children. If we focus on the process, then the children are learning about collaboration, empathy, resilience, problem solving, play, independence. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... For children, if you're getting what you expect when you expect to get it, and you haven't had to work for it or wait for it, there are so many critical aspects of growth that occur during delayed gratification. And so that idea of a life cycle that is out of your hands, but you're watching and you're part of it, really builds a, a more intrinsic experience for spring in the Adirondack Mountains is the time for maple tapping, a process that calls for patience and plenty of waiting. Boiling down the watery sap into a rich syrup is a slow, methodical process, something that the students at North Country School experience each year. Todd Ormiston is the executive director of the North Country School and its partner organization, Camp Treetops. He joined Ian to discuss the finer points of place-based education and experiential learning, North Country's farm-to-school program, and the valuable life lessons youths gain from bearing witness to life cycles. So place-based learning is a popular buzz term in education circles, especially environmental education. It is also central to your work with North Country School. So let's start with a basic definition of place-based learning. I think every educator will come up with a different definition, and a lot of it depends on their background, their training, and then also what's maybe most comfortable for them in their own personal education and then how what their teaching style is. So for us, there are two important aspects of place-based education. The first is that there are intentional moments built into a class or or even outside the, the quote-unquote academic realm where you set a class up or a child up for a learning moment in a desired location. A great example of that is we have an earth science teacher named Larry, 
And he has this sort of internally famous class called stream of consciousness. And wow. that is, is, it's an intentional class and it is, he does it every year with um, different results because it's different children and same stream, but as we know, streams change. And so the stream of consciousness class for his earth science is they go and observe, they write what they observe, they draw what they observe. And then they talk about what they've observed. And this is, we're talking about flow rate of a stream in the time of year. We could talk about erosion, talk about rocks, talk about vegetation, maybe even some living animals or insects in the stream. But that's an intentional opportunity to take time and observe and also acknowledge that everyone in the same place is observing something different or experiencing something different. So as much as the individual experience is important, it's also a shared experience with that class. So that's sort of an example of a of an intentionally set up place-based education moment. The next are more those moments where something happens and a talented teacher's radar is up on a moment where you can have a learning moment in time and in place. That will often happen, certainly in, in an academic setting, but we have a, a tremendous outdoor program, our farm and garden, our arts programs. These are things that are not seen as traditional academic experiences, but we believe that they are rigorous learning moments. And it could be about a leave no trace principles on a hike and examples of where maybe a hiker did not observe leave no trace principles. So you can obviously learn a little bit more about the impact on the land and the environment, but you also think about the environmental impact, the community impact, and also recognize the empathetic impact of, or the lack of empathy that someone may have for the world in which they live. So I think that what we're trying to accomplish is always having our radar up for moments when when children and adults alike can learn and then also set up for more deliberate experiences where you more potentially do a deep dive perhaps on a more academic side but also sort of that character learning side as well certainly these experiences sound very engaging and i've certainly participated in many such experiences and they've been incredibly engaging each time if we sort of zoom out and look more broadly at the value of place-based learning and some of the longer-term impacts of it. What have you observed just in the reactions of your students at your school or really anywhere? Yeah, I think, I, again, maybe there's, there's two things. One is, as I mentioned, um, time. And we're all a collection of snapshots in our lives. Hmm. And I think that when we give ourselves and our students the time to be and to observe and to interact and to collaborate. That allows for a deeper learning moment than, than what you would typically get if you're teaching to an exam or you're teaching to skills and knowledge. So I think that that's one of the most important parts for us in the age group in which we work, middle school age children. And then the other, like I said, with middle school age children, they learn so much better by doing. And I think we know that as well as as adults. But I think that sometimes schools will get caught in that race to skill and knowledge acquisition. And in the activities are repetitious. 
rather than experiential. And so the combination of, of learning by doing and allowing the time to do that is really important. And I know, especially in the public school sector, there is this expectation of getting through curriculum. And I'm empathetic to the demands of many teachers in school districts and state expectations. But that doesn't mean that you can't find those times to do that and practice taking time and observing and experiencing. And I can imagine that in an age where attention spans are very short, that these intentional experiences where you are allowing for time are incredibly valuable. And I know you also have a largely screen-free environment. Is that a big component of giving time and allowing these moments to breathe? To a certain degree. We're not screen-free from the perspective of not utilizing technology. Sure. We utilize technology, we call it intentional technology. So it's a tool that the children use and they receive from the technology. I think one of the challenges that we as our children and adults is when we give more to technology than we're receiving. And when I say more, I mean attention, emotion, anxiety. It can produce negative feelings for people if they're not using it intentionally as as a tool, as a communication tool or a learning tool. So because we're not screen free, but we're intentionally focused on technology, then they look at it as something other than this rabbit hole that they can get caught in. So I guess to your point, speaking about time is that they're not there to hang out and watch the next and next and next <laughs> real on Instagram or YouTube. They're there to get work done and then they move on to the next thing. So it's more about how the technology, the digital technology, the screen, whatever tool it is, it's more about how it's used as opposed to just an outright ban on it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Just prior to leaf out, sugar maples are adorned with small but elegant yellowish green flowers. They persist for such a short time that it's easy to miss them. So a key component of the place-based learning that you conduct at the North Country School is a farm to school program. I'm really excited to hear more about that. So can you just sort of walk us through how that works? Yeah, so North Country School and Camp Treetops are, are here in the High Peaks region of the Adirondack Park. We're at about 2,200 vertical feet above sea level, an environment that is not super conducive to farming and gardening. Nope. <laughs> and for a variety of reasons, including one is the soil. The soil is not as fertile as you would find down in a valley or a riverbed. And so over 100 years ago, when our camp started, Camp Treetops, it was a farm before then, so they were cultivating the land to a certain degree. But over 100 years ago, we began practicing organic farming. 
And the idea is that if the soil is not healthy, how can you eat food that comes from it and expect that it's going to be healthy? So we've been planting cover crops and composting and rotating land and doing all of the things that you do so that the soil will give back to you for over 100 years. And to that end, now we have a beautiful farm here, a very short growing season, as you can imagine. (laughs) And we do start in the spring in our greenhouses, but we have about 10 acres of of cultivated land that we garden for vegetables and potatoes and carrots and that sort of thing. And then we also have our farm and we have, um, well, I haven't counted the bees, but we have bees, but other than the bees, we have about 200 and 30 living things in the farm, including chickens and turkeys and pigs and horses and, and sheep and goats. And they're all, it's not a petting zoo. They're all, there's an intentional reason why we have each of them for our horseback riding. The goats were making soap with the milk. And of course the sheep and the turkeys and the chickens, we grow here and, and we care for them. And then we harvest them and eat them over the course of the next year. The children are deeply involved in understanding what it takes to be part of a farm and a garden. And that's built into their learning. Certainly we're bringing our farm and garden managers into the classroom to learn different things about biology class or or math class or, or things like that. But then the kids are also learning a lot about themselves and animals and plants in our environment while they're caring for the farm. And do you have to answer to some sort of regulatory body in terms of outcomes. I know the word outcome and objective as well are sometimes dirty words because they force us to be very convergent as opposed to this divergent learning where we lead from students' questions. But I I guess I'm asking how open are you to sort of follow the inquiry process and follow the curiosity of students and how much do you have to sort of stick to a script, so to speak? I think that the script has been written and rewritten over the course of the 100 plus years of our of Camp Treetops and 84 years of school. I think that the script of learning is highly dependent on the moment, on the moment time. It's also highly dependent on our super skilled mm. teachers and camp counselors. I think our script is really guided by our deep-seated values. And the values are sort of our North Star of what we deem to be important. And not just as a school or a camp, but as a community, as a community of learners, as a community that benefits from and contributes to a greater good here. Inclusion is an incredibly important component of who we are and what we do. So I think it's important to understand that curriculum mapping is occurring constantly for us both vertical and, and horizontal across grade levels and then within grade levels as far as how we're building a cross-curricular academic experience. But if we're not infusing what we believe to be true into our classes along with skill and knowledge acquisition, I think the, that the wheel gets a little wobbly. And, and the values that we're following really were, were introduced by the founders of first the camp and then the school. The founder of the school, Walter Clark, he has his three R's. Instead of reading, writing, and arithmetic, there's ruggedness, resourcefulness, and resilience. So those are important words for us, no matter what setting we're in. 
whether it is in the math class or it is in the barn or it is in one of the houses where the students live with the house parents. We have, as an independent school, we have the luxury to be thoughtful about taking deep dives in unexpected areas. And that's, I guess, why I was referencing the place-based education piece is that we have the latitude, we give our teachers the latitude to do experiments and exploration that isn't necessarily directly on our curriculum map. And I think in support of the work that you're doing, I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people, would argue that the more prescriptive, objectives-based approach results in students who are not particularly rich in those three R's. They're not particularly resilient. They're not particular. I'll add another one in. They're not particularly ready for what comes next. Do you find that having that freedom and being able to redraw the curriculum, and as you mentioned, horizontally and vertically, as you go, while at the same time leading with your values, is one of the keys to allowing for those three R's that are so foundational to the work that you do? Absolutely. And we trust it. That's the other piece of this is that we firmly believe and we check and make sure that our kids are, when they leave, we go through ninth grade, we want to make sure that they are ready for the next phase of their lives. Most of our children do leave here as a boarding school and go on to secondary boarding schools all over the country. And we are checking that. There are areas where our children are head and shoulders above the other children in the schools in which they attend. And there are other areas that we're a work in progress as well. I don't think, I I think it wouldn't be appropriate to suggest that we have it figured out. We're still working on different things that we can do better as well to better prepare our kids. Absolutely. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. After two or three warm days, the leaves pop, seemingly from nowhere. As gentle breezes pass through the trees, the sweet sound of rustling becomes the root of the forest soundscape. You somewhat alluded to this, but one of the key components of especially the farm to school program and just the place-based learning that you do in general is allowing students to bear witness to life cycles of different living things from beginning to end. And I really shouldn't take that linear approach of saying beginning to end. It's just the circular ongoing cycle of life. Uh, Why is this so important? Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up. Life cycles are incredibly important for us. And again, especially the age group that we're talking about, these are fourth graders to ninth graders. So, you know, they're nine or 10 years old to, you know, 14 or 15 years old. I don't know about you, but I remember that time of my life and there was a lot of change going on and, and I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. And you could have people explain why you're growing or why things that used to be easy or hard or why independence is expected of you as you grow older. What we see happen here with our children growing and experiencing and changing 
if they're doing that while they're watching it happen in other ways, we found that it's more almost calming. It's understanding that life changes and it's a lot easier to watch life change than to experience it yourself. So the life phases, the cycles that we go through, you know, they're countless. I could start in the springtime with tapping our maple trees and collecting the sap and bringing it to the boiler and making maple syrup, and then we share it. And so how in the world does this waterish substance that comes out of the side of a tree turn into such a, a glorious, sweet, yeah, delicious syrup, and then we share it and we actually use it in place of sugar here on campus. So that's one example of a life cycle for us. And then the trees stop giving us the sap and they grow their, their leaves. And so now we have trees with leaves that provide shade and they and they provide oxygen. And, and when the breeze goes through them, a, a sweet sound. And then in the fall, they change their colors and we get this amazing experience of fall here in the Adirondacks. And then we also know when the leaves fall, it's time to start skiing. And so we're watching a life cycle through a tree that is reflected in seasons that is a learning experience for our children. And that goes on in so many other ways, whether it's you know planting vegetables, we planted about, I think it was about, about 5,500 potatoes two weeks ago, and we'll harvest them in the fall, and we'll get probably roughly 3,500 pounds of potatoes for camp and school out of that. So those are really important aspects. And because that lives in nature, it's observational, it's experiential for our kids. Now, the other part of life phases is, is that you have to wait. You have to, when you plant a potato, you don't go dig it up tomorrow. Mm. Um, you don't go dig it up next month. It takes a while. And <laughs> we're in a world of the instant gratification isn't hoped for, it's expected. Oh, yes. Which is wonderful in some ways, but it's also for children, if you're getting what you expect when you expect to get it and you haven't had to work for it or wait for it, there are so many critical aspects of growth that occur during delayed gratification. And so that idea of a life cycle that is out of your hands, but you're watching it and you're part of it really builds a, a more intrinsic experience for, for all of us. Do you ever get explicit feedback from students who, for example, partake in waiting for potatoes and then actually tell you the impact that it's had on you or had on them rather? Yeah. And, and actually, so this, this is where, this is where it goes to the child's experience. That's, that's not observational. It's, it's experiential is that, Many of the things that we do with the children and certainly the things that they do for the farm and the garden are important, but we also, as I mentioned, we learn by doing. So you can have a life cycle that is a project and it could be the putting on of a play that takes months to develop with, mm -hmm. with learning your lines and, and building the set and that sort of thing or it could be in the wood shop, or it could be in our teaching and learning kitchen where we're pickling and canning vegetables. But what happens for us is that the outcome 
we can be very proud of no matter the outcome, but we're also constantly reminding ourselves that the process is really that remarkable learning moment. We're, we're not a highly competitive school. We have co-ed basketball team that will play every once in a while and a co-ed soccer team, but we don't have interscholastic sports, which sports will put a pretty significant priority on the score at the end of the game, yeah. which is important. And I myself love competitive sports, but in the environment in which we're in the process of getting to the end goal is just as important, if not more so for the kids. And if we focus on the process, then the children are learning about collaboration, empathy, resilience, problem solving, play, independence. Those are all character traits that can't be taught. They have to be experienced. So when we talk about life cycles of other things like a plant, we also translate that to the life cycle of something that the children are doing in what it means in the moment when you're getting from point A to point B. It's sort of an outside the box approach to looking at life cycles in general. Right, right. Process is important. Yeah, the big P word, process. <laughs> Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. In September, the maple-covered hills transform from green to spectacular orange, a stunning final act of color before the leaves drop for the winter. So next steps... The summer is upon us. What has you excited for this summer and beyond that? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot to be excited about for us where the, the pandemic has changed many of our experiences here, though we're sort of in a quasi bubble in, in, in many ways, and we have been very thoughtfully safe, but we've also recognized that the mental health consequences of the pandemic are significant and oh, yeah. that we need to continue to recognize joy and play are really important parts of living, whether you're an adult or a child. And so what we're looking forward ahead to is to share more of who we are and what we do through venues like Green Teacher and the idea that 
we're doing some really special things for children here, but we also want people to understand that these are translatable experiences that you don't have to be at North Country School to be able to build these experiences, these qualities, these priorities in your life. And so it's my hope that especially in the moment we're in now, that we all can take some time to reflect on what is important and find time to do some of these intentional timeout moments where we can sit and, and contemplate and, and regain the energy that we need right now. So it's my expectation that we're going to continue to do what we do. And I love having the opportunity to share this with others who are interested in it. Oh, for sure. Getting right down to the brass tacks, getting very practical. What's one suggestion, one piece of advice you would give educators about how they can replicate a lot of the great work that you're doing? I have a guiding question that we talk about here quite often, and it's to our teachers, it's to our parents, it's to our, our board of trustees. The question is, what do you want your child to be like when they're an adult? That's a very open-ended question, and, and there are a lot of, there, there's no wrong answer to that. But I think that, that in order, just like any goal setting that you can have, in order to, for the present, you have to understand what you're seeking in your future. And so for parents, I think that it's important to take a moment and think about the list of qualities or experiences or that perfect job or it doesn't, there's no wrong answer to it. But if we don't start thinking about what we want our children to be, what type of people we want them to be when they become adults, then how can we plan a trajectory when they're younger? And for teachers, I would ask that same question. What do you want your students to be like when they're 25 and, or 30 or 40? And what can you do as a teacher now to affect that trajectory towards what you think is that goal? And because school and life is a mosaic, it's not like anyone has any single moment that they're going to imprint that. But that mosaic of someone's life is affected by all of the inputs that they experience. So, you know, I, I think it's important that, that we think about what the outcomes are long term. How do we want our children to treat each other when they're adults? How do we want our children to define happiness or joy or success? And I think reverse engineering that into the classroom you will find time to be able to build that into your class. I like that term reverse engineering. I've heard backward mapping, but I think it all largely covers the same territory and it's a valuable exercise for individuals and groups. Right. Well, this has really been illuminating. Thank you so much, Todd, for sharing a brief glimpse into your world and I'm sure there's still a few spring wildflowers out there, so I don't want to hold you up. I'm sure You'd love to get out and experience those and share those experiences with your students. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. While the maple forest of winter is quiet, it is still very much alive. As hibernating insects hide beneath deep furrows of bark, chickadees and nuthatches forage among the branches. Within the trees, energy lies latent waiting to be released once rising temperatures signal the onset of the spring sap run. 
Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas Nessi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I hope there are spring wildflowers. I hope I wasn't just speaking yeah. uh, nonsense. <laughs> there, there, there's a little I, snow still on the tops of the mountains, but uh, yeah, yeah. The, the daffodils and the tulips have finally, finally uh, shown themselves. Oh, good.